We've been hearing about flooding in Pakistan for months now. Pakistan has declared a state of emergency. 500 people died in July alone in Pakistan because of flooding. The results of these super flood torrents are shocking. So many months, in fact, that many have moved on. Pakistan hasn't. There is eight times more rains than the last monsoon season, double the amount of water, triple the amount of water. So much damage has already been done. Al Jazeera's Zain Basravi has been walking, driving and floating through the country's most affected areas. The word unprecedented has been thrown around, but at the same time, these crises are not unprecedented. We've known things are going to get worse. There are fewer and fewer excuses for not taking preventative measures. So what did we know about how hard these floods would hit Pakistan? And what's being done now to help those affected and those to come? I'm Hala Mahiyadeen, and this is The Take. Zane, it's good to talk to you again. The last time we saw each other in person, we were both in the newsroom back in Doha. But now, well, where are you now? Tell us. I'm in interior Sindh in Pakistan. I landed in Karachi to start reporting on the floods. By that time, the monsoon had already been going for about two months. I met up with the team in Karachi. We started reporting inside the city on the first day. The world had seen images of cars floating down main roads in Karachi. And a lot of the water had receded, leaving behind massive debris fields and mosquitoes and bugs sort of everywhere. The city was in an absolute state. But... As chaotic as Karachi was, we very quickly made our way into the interior of Sindh. For those of you who haven't been to Sindh province or Pakistan, it may be helpful to visualise where all of this is. If you're looking at a map, Karachi's in Sindh province in the southeast corner of Pakistan. Amongst other things, it's a beach city on the Arabian Sea. And if you travel north, like Zain and the Al Jazeera team did, Winding up along the Indus River, further north and west into Balochistan, are some of the areas hardest hit by the floods. We came into Larkana and then further into Shikarpur, and we've based ourselves in Shikarpur and interior Sindh for the last couple of weeks. From here, we've gone all over the province to affected areas, and we made a trip into Balochistan where things are very bad. So tell us about these floods, because... They may well have drifted off of most people's radars by now, but you're on the ground. Those floods haven't gone away, have they? We've had stringers all over the country in every affected area trying to send us reports of what's happening, sending us footage. So we've had a real bird's eye view of this thing. And there's a couple of things that are really interesting. The floods in 2010 were a product of heavy rains and floodwaters coming down from the north. More than 1,500 people were killed in the 2010 floods, and Pakistan was left asking the UN for $2 billion to recover. A stream of human misery trying to escape the destruction left behind. Homes washed away, roads destroyed. The money was meant to help over 14 million people over the course of the year. It was the biggest UN appeal ever. The death toll from these floods could surpass that, And scientists say the reach of these floodwaters is much worse. What's different this time is that 
the rain started in Sindh province first. The clouds just opened up and really overwhelmed the places where the water came down in Sindh. So by the time water from glacial melt and dams overflowing from the north, by the time that water started coming down into Sindh, Sindh at large parts completely submerged. To understand how these changing weather patterns mean more flood water, we got in touch with Afia Salam, based in Karachi. I'm a journalist who's been writing on different subjects, but for the past about a decade and a half, my focus has been climate change and environment. And some of her experience is firsthand. You're in Karachi. How are you seeing the effects of these monsoons there? We had a very bad spell of monsoons here because Karachi is part of Sindh. Karachi is the capital of Sindh. The torrential rain resulted in urban flooding, preceded by a very, very severe heat wave. Everyone in Karachi has been advised to avoid venturing outdoors and stay hydrated. Doctors have urged the people to brace themselves as the temperatures might touch 50 degrees Celsius. And because of the heat wave, there was more capacity for the water vapors to be absorbed by the monsoon clouds. But it's not just the heat wave, Afia says. Other than that, Pakistan has already experienced a one degree warming. Now, it may seem minuscule to a layperson, but one degree has meant these heat waves, droughts, as well as the melting of our glaciers in the extreme north of our country, straddling Nepal, India, China, Pakistan, Afghanistan. The largest number of glaciers outside the two poles is called the third fold by the scientific community. Those have started melting. And that creates a phenomenon called global lake outburst floods, where water from melting glaciers will suddenly rage down rivers, taking buildings, bridges and infrastructure with it. And there's more. The climate scientists have been warning us that the monsoon shifting is happening. We have a history of the monsoons coming from the Bay of Bengal. The monsoon has shifted. The Bay of Bengal is east of India, the opposite side from Pakistan. So in the past, the monsoon clouds are pretty well drained by the time they make it to Pakistan. This monsoon season, Afia says, was different. This came from another direction to the west. The rains this summer started out closer to Pakistan and were more intense. This was a ship that has been perceived over the years. Our 2010 floods, they also started towards the west. It wasn't as west of this and it wasn't as intense as this, but it was also very devastating. So since 2010, the shift is perceptive. Why would you say climate change is directly responsible for the level of flooding that we are seeing in Pakistan? Climate change is responsible for the extraordinary volume of rainfall as well as the different location from where earlier monsoon rain used to fall. So that is where the climate change umbrella is. This is a new area from where the water was coming down and then it just simply spread into the plains of Pakistan. Those plains just had no capacity to absorb that water and there are no drainage paths, you know, for the water coming from the west. So that water is standing there and that is what is inundating. And we also have one of the biggest river systems which receives monsoon rainfalls and at several places there were breaches because the pressure of the water was too much and that river water actually mixed with the water that had come from the west and that exacerbated suddenly. 
So climate change was the responsible trigger. That region wasn't really a monsoon region earlier. And now, of course, this year, it's moved a little bit down south. People didn't really expect the water to come rushing down with the kind of force that it did. So it was compounding the impact, compounding the suffering of the people. That area, Sindh province and Balochistan province, that's where Zain is reporting from. They're having to release more water from swelling lakes. That is sending more water downstream. And there is likely to be danger for people for the next month. But the thinking is the worst of the rains, the worst of the monsoon season, that part is over. But it's hard to put a silver lining on this because the suffering is enormous. What we're seeing now is that some of the water has begun to recede in certain areas. You can definitely see the difference driving down the same streets where we were two weeks ago. But there are all kinds of new humanitarian challenges. It has gotten hotter. With the water receding, they're going to find more dead bodies. They're going to find carcasses of animals. That's going to lead to disease. The death toll is likely to go up. There's waterborne illnesses, insect-borne illnesses. There is more rain predicted later this month, around the 25th of September. The hope is it won't be as heavy as it was before. The scale of this just seems incomprehensible. A landmass as big as the UK was flooded at one point. A third of Pakistan has been covered in water. 33 million people have been affected. Well over a thousand people dead. I mean, how do you get your head around the scale? You really don't, to be honest. The more we do, the more it feels like it's not enough more than a thousand dead. I think the last time we got an official count, it was around 1,300. The death toll is likely to go up. These weather patterns have taken over the entire region. So it goes beyond Pakistan's borders. It's huge. And we have to say response locally, response at the national level, response at the international level has been very slow in comparison to other crises in Pakistan in the past. We spoke to one of the first international NGOs we've seen here, and one of their spokespeople said to us, one of the reasons that a lot of people haven't stepped foot on Pakistani ground yet is because it seems so big. I think people are slow to react because the problem is so big that it seems unapproachable. And the first thing is to just take a first step and get your team here, get your boots on the ground. That was the word she used, unapproachable. And that's exactly true. You really don't know where to start because it's not just that the largest freshwater lake in the country and one of the largest freshwater lakes in the world had to be cut and then overflowed into an enormous landmass and almost exponentially added more water to already submerged districts. It's compounding existing acute problems like poverty in the country, food insecurity, child safety issues. Well, let's narrow our sense of scale then. I know that you've been talking with families in Karachi and Sindh. Has any one story stood out to you in particular? One of the stories that none of us have been able to shake, myself, the producer, the cameraman, it really hit us all. There was a woman, her husband is a laborer, a bricklayer. She begs on the street. They lived in a small mud and brick house and it had been submerged by the water. So they were living out on the street with a tent and she'd been asleep at night with her kids and she woke up and her three-year-old just just wasn't there. If the floods had spared my home, 
if we weren't living on the side of the road, if I hadn't been sleeping so soundly, then maybe Numa would be safe. She'd fallen asleep with her in her arms and she woke up and she wasn't there anymore. She her was either kidnapped or she thinks that maybe her daughter got up and maybe fell into standing flood water and drowned. Children were deeply insecure already in Pakistan. So that's exactly what this flood has taken away. She was just beside herself. She just kept crying and crying. And we just reached into our pocket and handed her whatever cash we had and she wouldn't take it. She just kept refusing the money. I don't want money. I don't want anything. My only appeal to the government is to reunite me with my little girl. Just somebody please help me find my little girl. That's, that's all she wanted. Whether she's dead or alive, I just want to see her one last time. I don't want anything else. In the name of God, what condition is she in? She was so small. At the end of the day, for us, this whole trip, all of the reporting, it comes down to one little girl taken away from one mother on the side of one road somewhere in Balochistan. Saying that just sounds awful. All of that big talk is irrelevant. People on the ground don't care about the politics. They don't care about policy. They just want someone to help them now. It's all triage. I think the time for big ideas will come much later, if ever. Right now, it's just triage. And the triage will only help in lessening how much worse it's going to get. Pakistan's military has been deployed to try and keep things civil to distribute aid. Has that been helping at all? I mean, what's the aid situation look like from where you are and for where this woman is? So the Pakistani military has been ordered to begin delivering aid all across the country, and they have been doing so. But this is an organization, while it is the, easily the best resourced and the strongest institution in the country, it isn't necessarily always the best in terms of dealing with civilian humanitarian relief operations. But they are the only institution that can really begin to do it in earnest. In the past, they've always done it in conjunction with other international NGOs, and that's helped to soften the approach of what is essentially a fighting force. We over and over again see videos of helicopter drops going badly and food being wasted. That's gone viral a few times. And even though it may be a fraction of of how much aid they're delivering, it, it just creates a sense of anxiety and anger among the population that needs the help. They've tried to take a light touch and a soft approach, and we've been with them during aid delivery, but it very quickly they fall back to crowd control and riot policing. And in fairness, the conditions are difficult, it's hot. So as soon as a truck arrives somewhere, they're just overrun. We've also had reports of trucks being hijacked and looted just as they leave Karachi heading into Interior Sin. Now, when the army tries to control that, it always makes for unfortunate and dramatic images of them having to push and beat and hold people back. And people say that they feel like they're being treated worse than animals. One of the people we spoke to in Balochistan province said when he went up to a local police official and asked for any rations, and he said that right now, your life is worth less than the lives of our animals, of our livestock. Everything is happening simultaneously. This is a three-dimensional crisis that is affecting people, livestock, businesses, healthcare, children, hospitals, everything all at once. And in terms of foreign aid, are you seeing any of that? Is that going any better? 
So foreign aid, we've seen echoes of past crises, like old tents with UN markings and, and others on them that people have sort of dusted off and started using again. We've seen some aid arrive from China. We've seen MSF and ICRC, and we, we've seen people around, but it's not the footprint that you need this far into a crisis. This is the third month of the monsoon season. It is piecemeal, small. What we're hearing now is that the government is not allowing aid to come in quickly. Partner countries like UAE and Turkey and others that have that have sent aid, but that is not trickling down quickly enough or at all in some cases. It sounds like it's one crisis after another in Pakistan. For those of us following the country, the economy was already wobbly. The country's nearing a debt crisis. There's rampant inflation. It's unclear if the country will get the international lending it's depending on. The price tag of the flood is already over $10 billion at this point. What does this mean for Pakistan and the economy? I mean, there are no positive indicators. Every indicator right now is going the wrong way. Crops that have been decimated, there's infrastructure that's been washed away. None of the trains in the country are running right now. Tracks that have been damaged and there's fear of derailment. Will it get the money or not? Those are big questions that are really hard to answer at this point in time. One of the people we met said, any aid that comes in, any money that comes, don't give it to local officials, don't give it to the government, give it to the army they'll give us the food we need. But then there's people who say the army is the biggest black hole for any aid that comes into the country. I mean, there's a lot of distrust of almost every institution in this country right now. And it's just going to slow down any relief that you can get to people. And that may be counted in billions of dollars in, in Islamabad, but in small villages in Sin, that's counted in lives. We heard one report in the village we're in of a child that died in a makeshift tent simply from not having food, water, and medicine. Those are probably stories repeated all over the country right now, wherever the, the flood effectees are. We hear this being raised all the time. Glaciers melting with monsoon rains, and yet Pakistan's not a big contributor to greenhouse gases. There's aid coming in, but is that enough to make up for the damage that's clearly being done? Well, I'll start by paraphrasing what uh, Antonio Gutierrez said. He arrived here, he met with Pakistani leaders. About $160 million that, that's been earmarked at the moment for emergency response by the UN. He said it was a drop in the bucket. What is your message to the people who are anchored firmly in the worst part of this crisis? My message is that uh, the world has a responsibility to support them, that the world must help Pakistan at the present moment for Pakistan to be able to rescue all the people in those dramatic circumstances. Afia, the climate change journalist we heard from earlier, says climate change reparations is a real conversation now. That's a conversation that is coming up repeatedly because people have all seen that without contributing to a problem, they have to bear the brunt of it. And they are bearing the brunt of it without uh, much help to be able to cope with it. This kind of disaster pushes so many people below the poverty line. It increases food insecurity, water insecurity. I don't think the world can afford any more instability than it already is facing. The world has to look at all these things seriously. If the word reparation makes people uncomfortable, maybe they can put another tag to it. You need technology, you need resources, you need money and uh, infrastructure, which is climate true. Our bridges were swept away, our roads were swept away. We need those think tanks, we need the academicians and trade universities, we need centers of excellences who can 
uh, do disaster management modeling, who can do climate modeling, forecasting. Right. So the, I mean, there's a whole, whole range of things that countries like ours need, but we do not have the resources for that. This is something that Zane too has been hearing a lot about on the ground. We spoke to a woman who measures these flood disasters in children being born. And she said, my daughter's pregnant again, and it was only five years ago that we had a flood like this. It used to be more spread out. And we talk about, you know, telling the same story again as older men in 10 years in probably much worse situations. People in government buildings in Islamabad, yes, they're talking about it. Young people are talking about it. Young volunteers from urban areas have been collecting materials and donations and money and just driving themselves out and just doing runs into places where it's needed and dropping it off themselves. They don't trust the system. I think you're going to see a lot more solutions like that, localized solutions. Broader conversations about climate change, people don't feel like they're in control of it here. They don't feel like anything they can do here will make a difference or make a change. What I will say is, is echo Antonio Guterres in very simple terms. It's Pakistan today, it could be your country tomorrow. Global ecosystem, floods, monsoons, they don't care about political boundaries or people's religious or political affiliations. It's very democratizing. It's going to affect everyone. Even if the weather doesn't get bad where you are, the displacement of human beings will have knock-on effects everywhere. They're moving into Pakistani cities now, but when those Pakistani cities get overwhelmed by rising seawater or the next big climate event, people are going to start moving to other places. So you can either resolve it now or deal with it when it comes knocking at your door. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Chloe K. Lee, Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliai and me, Hala Mahiyadeen. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Malek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. Ney Alvarez is our head of audio. We'll be back on Friday.